let me tell you what I had for breakfast this morning, but don't judge me. For breakfast this morning, with my coffee, I had blueberry Pop-Tarts. Can I get a witness? I love them. Now, my wife is uh, very keen on serving us healthy, nutritious, well-balanced meals, but every so often, just as a little treat... She'll bring home some Pop-Tarts for me and the kids to eat, and, uh, and, and we love them. Uh, but I understand that you, you can't live on Pop-Tarts. That, that just wouldn't be healthy. It wouldn't be nutritious. Well, this morning, our sermon is not a Pop-Tart sermon. We're going to dig down deep into some of the great doctrines of our faith, understanding that in that digging deep, we will be nourished and more spiritually healthy and challenged to consider what the Bible says, listen to me, about the most important issues in our lives. So keeping that in mind, I want you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. We'll begin reading in verse 15. Galatians chapter 2, verse 15. We're just going to cover two verses this morning. I'd ask you to stand with me, please, in honor of the reading of God's Word. Thank you, choir and music team, this morning. Wow. Death has died and love has won. Amen? Man, what a, what a powerful, powerful song. Galatians chapter 2, verse 15. Paul writing here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. You think he's trying to get a point across there? Let's pray together this morning. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, and we are grateful for another opportunity to gather as a faith family, Lord, to sing praises to your name, to fellowship with one another, to encourage one another, and, and now in this moment to open our Bibles and to hear you speak to us as your word goes forth, accompanied by the power of the Holy Spirit. So I just pray, Lord, that you would have your way in our midst, that you would touch our hearts and change our lives. And, and as we dig deep, Lord, give us great understanding and uh, application. And Lord, I pray that you would touch every life represented in this room. And we ask and pray it all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. We jumped right into the middle of a passage, and we've been working our way through the book of Galatians. Uh, the book of Galatians is, in actuality, a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to churches scattered throughout the first century Roman province of Galatia. He's writing because these churches that he was used by God to begin, to start, had been infiltrated with false teachers and false teaching. And the false teaching went something like this. These Folks would come into the church and say, hey, we hear that you've placed your faith in Christ. That's great. But since we have a, a Jewish background, we want to share with you some other things that you need to do in order to make sure you are right with God and that God will accept you. And so they were saying things like this. You need to be 
circumcised. Uh, if, if you really want to be right with God, J- just faith alone in Christ is not enough. You need to do this. You need to keep the Jewish feasts and the cleanliness laws and all these other things to make sure that you are right with God. And so, in essence, they were adding to the gospel. And he is angry. He is upset. I mean, he goes directly to the point in chapter 1 and begins to warn them about the danger of false gospels and distorted gospels and false teaching. And he's very direct and uses some very strong language. And then Paul goes into some autobiography to share his own story of how he used to trust in his external righteousness to save him. He used to trust in his own works and his... his, uh, adherence to the law, but then he says, I met Jesus, risen from the dead, he changed my life, I understand that, that you're saved by faith in Christ alone. So he's sharing that story, then he shares how uh, this doctrine of justification by faith was really put to the test when he went to Jerusalem, when some folks said, well, this, this guy Titus you brought with you, your companion on this missionary journey, uh, on, on this journey, needs to be circumcised if he really wants to be right with God. And Paul said, that's not the truth of the gospel. He's saved by faith in Christ. And then he has an encounter with Peter in Antioch where Peter will not eat with Gentiles because he's afraid of what the Jews might say about him eating with Gentiles and being seen as ceremonially unclean. And and Paul says, Peter, that's not in step with the gospel. That's not the truth of the gospel. You need to understand that Jews and Gentiles are made right with God through faith, not by adherence to the law. So there's nothing wrong with eating with Gentile families. It doesn't make you unclean because you're made clean, not by keeping the law, but you're made clean by Jesus Christ alone. And so he's dealing with these autobiographical stories. And you have the sense that he shared everything he shared to get to verse 16. In fact, verse 16, I believe, is the centerpiece of the entire book or the thesis statement of the entire book. If I had to boil down Galatians into one verse, I would boil it down to verse 16. And the reason I believe that Paul wants this to be the driving point of his book is because he uses repetition in that one verse to get his point across. But notice here what he's talking about in verse 16. 16, he says, we know a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also believe in Christ Jesus in order to be justified. The second time we see that word justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So three times in this verse, he uses the word what? Justified. Now, we need to understand what he means when he uses that word. What is, what is meant by the term justification. It's found here. It's found in Romans 3 and 4. It's found all over God's Word. So what is meant by that phrase, justification? Well, I have it there in your notes if you're following along with me. Justification is the act whereby God declares a person righteous in his sight. Justification is the act whereby God declares a person righteous in his sight. In other words, justification happens when a person is brought into a right relationship or is rightly related to God. So that's what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about, listen, how to be right with God. How can you know you are saved? You have a right relationship with Him. Now this word justification, it's a legal term. It was used in the legal realm in the first century to declare a verdict of a judge rendering someone not guilty. This word justification 
is the exact opposite of condemnation. So if you want to understand what justification is, it's the exact opposite of being condemned. It's being declared not guilty. So, so that's what this word means. Now, that's what it means. If he's talking about how a person can be made right with God, we need to understand how a person can be made right with God. If justification is being brought into a relationship with God, we need to understand how to be justified, right? And that's what this passage is all about. So here's the question I want to pose and then answer directly from God's Word this morning. How can a person be justified? How can a person be made right with God? How does that happen? How do you know that you know God? How do you know that you're saved and not condemned? How do you know that you're going to heaven instead of going to hell? How do you know that? How does that happen in a person's life? Well, it's not automatic because notice the first point. You need to realize you're not right with God. You need to realize you're not right with God. Now notice what he says there in verse 15. He's talking about the difference between Jews and Gentiles. And he says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Now, he's saying here that the Jews see the Gentiles as sinners. And he's saying, I would grew up as a Jew and I kept the law. But based on what he says in verse 16, he's saying, I understand that, that keeping the law didn't make me right with God. Even though I wasn't a Gentile sinner, like the Jews saw the Gentiles, I was a Jew, I wasn't made right by, by keeping the law. And so that's the point he's trying to make leading into verse 16. He says a person is not justified by the works of the law. So here's what he's saying in verse 15. Whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Gentile, you're, 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 you need a Savior. You're, you're not made right by doing any moral things or religious things. And we know that Paul considered himself a, a sinner because look what it says in verse 20 of this same chapter. We'll get to verse 20 later on. Not this morning, but soon. But he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. Now look at this next phrase. And gave himself for me. In other words, then I kept the law, I wasn't seen as a Gentile sinner, but guess what? Jesus had to give himself for me because I am a sinner in need of a Savior. In fact, over in 1 Timothy, Paul calls himself the chief of sinners, the foremost of sinners. He understood he needed rescue. And so we need to understand that whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, whatever your ethnicity, all people have sinned against God. All people have sinned against God. Apart from Christ, listen to me, if we all stood before the, the great white throne of judgment, apart from Christ, we would have to plead guilty. Because it will be clear on that day, those that do not know Christ, that, that, that we have rebelled against God's law. In fact, those that aren't saved, when they stand before the great white throne of judgment, the Bible says that there will be books of remembrance opened. A, a, listen, a full replay of our lives. And when that happens, no one will be able to say, well, I'm not guilty. The book will be opened and say, hey, remember this? Remember when you disobeyed God here and when you didn't do what God wanted you to do here? And remember this attitude and this thought and this speech and this action and 
this motivation. And do you remember? Apart from Christ, everyone on the day of judgment would have to cry out, guilty. And, and there'll be nowhere to run and, and, and nowhere to hide. Why? All people have sinned against God. Now, Paul makes a very similar argument in the book of Romans. Chapter 1, he deals with the universality of sin. Chapter 2, he deals with the sin of the, 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 the Jews and the Gentiles. In chapter 3, he says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. So, all people have sinned against God. That's the truth you and I need to understand if we want to be right with God. Secondly, you need to understand that all who sin against God deserve condemnation. We deserve punishment. Verse 16, a person is not justified, not made right by works of the law. So again, the opposite of justification is condemnation. If you're not justified in Christ, then you deserve the opposite. You get the opposite, and the opposite is condemnation. Now, this might surprise you a little bit this morning, but if you are not a Christian, listen carefully. It's not that you're going to die and then be condemned. The Bible says you're condemned right now. The only thing between you and hell, if you're not saved, is the beating of your heart. And that could stop at any moment. Right? And every moment your heart beats is grace. God being merciful to you, giving you opportunity to repent and be made right with God. To understand that you're not. So all who sin against God deserve condemnation. The last part of verse 16 when he says there, the very last part of that verse, by works of the law no one will be justified. Most scholars believe it's an allusion to Psalm 143 verse 2. Now Psalm 143 verse 2 says, For no one living is righteous before you. And the Greek word in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, translated righteous is the same exact word Paul uses here in verse 16 translated, no one will be justified. And so the, the, the Septuagint renders Psalm 143 verse 2 like this. No one living shall be justified before you. In other words, everyone, everyone, everyone needs a Savior. That's what he's saying here. That, that, that's the point of this verse. So apart from Christ, all people find themselves not justified. They find themselves condemned. I heard a, a panel discussion this past week in John Piper was speaking on this panel discussion. He's a retired pastor and prolific author. and He said that he was speaking in a certain area, and the, the service at that church that weekend was Saturday night service. So he says he found himself on Sunday morning with nothing to do. Uh, he said, I could have slept in and just you know, enjoyed my Sunday morning because I'd preached last night, or I could have you know, gone to a church somewhere. So he decided to go to a church that didn't believe like him. He found a, he went to a, a liberal mainline denomination type church where he knew it would be very, very different. He just wanted to hear what they had to say. And so he walks into this, this church and here's this evangelical, Bible-believing, gospel-preaching pastor sitting there. And he said he was just stunned by the things coming out of the mouth of the pastor and those on the platform. And basically the message was, hey, anything goes... Anything goes with God, anything goes with us. And so, listen, we, we, we'll accept you, we'll, aff we'll, listen, we'll affirm you, no matter what your lifestyle decisions are, 
we will affirm and accept you. And, and, and that was the message that he was hearing. And here's the analogy that he made. And I thought it was a great analogy of that kind of, of, of preaching. He said, it's like being a doctor and saying, putting a sign out and saying, hey, all diseases welcome. All sicknesses, all maladies, welcome to this doctor's office. But when you come, you don't offer the cure for any of them. You just say, we're glad you're here. Glad you're here. We accept you in your sickness. We accept you in your malady. We accept you in your hardship. Glad you're here. Let's celebrate that we're all together in the room. But wouldn't it be cruel for a doctor never to offer healing? And he said, that's what they were doing. Everyone's welcome, but they never pointed folks to the cure. Because listen, the reality is we're all broken. We're all broken and we all need healing. We all need a Savior. And for you to understand that you need a Savior, you need to understand that you are condemned apart from Christ. Before you'll ever reach your hand to Jesus, you need to understand that you are lost and in your sins. Or let me say it like this. You'll never run to embrace the good news until you understand the bad news. And so, number one, realize that you're not right with God. Number two, how can a person be made right with God? Realize human effort will not make you right with God. Realize, say, okay, wait, I'm broken. I, I want to be right with God. I want to have a relationship with Him. So what should I do? That's the wrong question. Doing things doesn't make you right with God. That's the point. And notice how he wants to get the point across. He says it three times in one verse. Look what he says. He says, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. Skip down. He says, "Not justification is not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Three times in one verse. Rapid fire. You will not be made right with God by works of the law. He's trying to, to drive that point home. You see, the works of the law cannot save you. The works of the law cannot save you. Now, we need to define what is meant here by works of the law. What does he mean when he says works of the law? Well, he's speaking of the Old Testament law that the Lord gave to the nation of Israel the Old Testament law had three aspects. It had a, uh, a ceremonial aspect, the sacrificial system, which pointed to the ultimate sacrifice that would come when Jesus died on the cross for our sins. had a civil aspect, how to regulate um, their society. It had a moral aspect, the moral law of God, which really is encapsulated in the Ten Commandments, God's expectations for our lives. But that's what he means by uh, the law. And, and we know even more specifics by reading Galatians. He mentions the Galatians, circumcision. He mentions the food laws and his confrontation with Peter. Uh, other, other issues were the Sabbath and, and, uh, and other uh, regulations. Galatians 3 mentions uh, Sinai, so he's probably thinking of the Ten Commandments as well. So when he says works of the law, he's, he's in summary form talking about the Old Testament law that God gave Israel. You know, what does that mean for me? I'm not trying to keep the, uh, the, the festivals or the feast or those sorts of things or observe the cleanness laws or ceremony or uh, 
um, sacrificial laws. I haven't seen us try to sacrifice an animal lately at Longview Point. So, so I mean, does this, does this apply to us? And the answer is yes. By application, listen to me, works of the law, that phrase, is any human effort to be justified by God. That's what, that's what it means by works of the law. Any, anything you think you can do to be justified before God is a work of the law. You, even though it may not be the same issue, it's the same mindset. It's the same theological belief. I mean, for them it may have been circumcision or cleanness laws. For you it may be, well, if I'm a member of a certain denomination, or if I give to charity, or if my good outweighs my bad, then God will accept me. But see, it's the same thing. You're basing your desire to be justified on what you do. And Paul says, you're not justified by what you do. He says it over and over and over again. Now here's why the law cannot save you. Why the law cannot make you right with God. The problem is not with the law. The problem is with us. Turn to Romans 7. I want to show you this is so important to understand the argument that Paul's making. Romans chapter 7. Notice what Paul writes in verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? Because he's making the same argument here. Law will not save you. So is the law bad? By no means, he says. He said, if it had not been for the law, I would, have not, I would not have known sin. So he gets to the purpose of the law. The law is there to show us our need for a Savior. Let me prove it to you. Has anyone in here ever kept the Ten Commandments perfectly? You need a Savior. You ever told a lie? Or take something that doesn't belong to you? You say, I've never murdered anybody. Have you hated someone in your heart? Jesus said, that's murder. You say, I've never committed adultery. Have you lusted after someone? That's adultery, Jesus says, in your heart. You ever taken the Lord's name in vain? You ever coveted something that didn't belong to you? I mean, none of us would say, I have a perfect record when it comes to the Big Ten, Right? And that's the point. Over in Galatians 3, we'll see this. The Bible says the law is the schoolmaster that leads us to Christ. It shows us we need a Savior. So keep reading. He says there, For if I would not, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. In other words, the law shows us there's something in us that's rebellious. Case in point. You ever walk by a sign and it says, Wet paint, do not touch. What do you want to do? What do you want to do? You want to touch it, don't you? There's, a, there's this little rebel in you, right? Little rebel, that's what he's saying. And so he's saying, when I saw the, the commandment, do not covet, I saw in me a coveter. That's the point that he's making. Keep reading. But sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness, for apart from the law, sin, uh, uh, sin lies dead. 
I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. In other words, I couldn't do it. I couldn't keep it. For sin, seizing opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. God's law is good. It unveils his perfect character and nature. But we can't keep it because we're imperfect. The problem is not with the law. The problem is with our inability to keep the law. And he gets more explicit in, in chapter 8. Look at chapter 8 of Romans very quickly. Romans chapter 8. Y'all still with me? It's not Pop-Tarts, all right? Y'all still with me? Look in Romans 8, verse 3. Let's, let's look in verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. In other words, God has provided salvation and the law couldn't do it because your flesh is too weak to keep it. So you got two options to be made right with God. You can perfectly obey the law. We've all struck out on that one, right? Or you can accept God's salvation by grace through faith. That's, that's what he's saying here. So we are too weak to keep the law perfectly. Now I want to be clear here. And he says that the law is good. It's righteous. This, this does not mean that morality doesn't matter. In fact, when you're saved, the Bible says in Romans 8, that the Spirit comes into your life to help you to begin to live up to the law. To help you to begin to obey. God wants to transform you. Morality matters, amen? But morality doesn't save. Because apart from Christ, you're not moral enough. God will get to your morality after he saves you. He'll produce fruit in your life by the power of the Holy Spirit and the leadership and guidance of the Word of God and encouragement of the church. Morality matters. We want to honor God with our life, but morality does not save. That's the point that he's making. So let me illustrate this. What if you wanted to sign up for a gym membership? You're going to get in shape. And you show up to the gym, and the owner of the gym says, if you want to join this gym, you're welcome, but you got to pass one test first. They take you over to the bench press, and they say, if you can bench press 500 pounds, you're in. Now, if you're like me, you would say, I can't bench press 500 pounds. Listen, I'm too weak. I, I can't join your club if that's the standard. And if you can't bench press 500 pounds, the only way you could join the club is if the owner says, well, I'll give you a membership. Right? That's what Paul's saying. Pa Paul is saying... God's given us the law to guide us, to teach us our need for a Savior, to point to the sacrificial work of Christ. But we need to understand that keeping the law will not justify you because our flesh makes us weak. We're unable to keep the law. That's the point. So what's the third truth here? This is kind of hopeless so far. How can I be right with God? Well, understand you're not right with God. Understand you can't, you can't work enough morality in your life to be right with God. But here's the third and glorious last point of the sermon. 
Place your faith in Christ alone to be right with God. Place your faith in Christ alone to be right with God. Look back with me in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. He's, he's driving the point home. Look what he says three times. We know a person, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. That's one. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus. That's two. In order to be justified by faith in Christ. That's three. Three times he says, you're not justified by works of the law. You're justified by faith, but not just faith. Listen to me. Faith in Christ Jesus. That's what saves. That's what makes you right with God. So here's the question. What does it mean to have faith in Christ? What does that mean? How do I know if I'm a person that's placed my faith in Christ? Well, you need to understand that faith is more than knowledge about Jesus and his ministry. There are people that, that know about Jesus. They've heard about Jesus. They can share things with you about Jesus. But they're lost in their sins. They've never been born again. They're headed for hell. And a lot of these folks think they're okay because they know some things about Jesus. Maybe they grew up in church or their parents took them to church growing up or you know, they have some kind of religious background or they've gone through a confirmation class or they're a member of a church or they've gone through some ceremony or, and they think, well, you know, I know some things about Jesus. And, and, and here's, I call these uh, census Christians. Here's what I mean by that. If you put a census in front of them and say, hey, check the box that, that identifies your faith. Well, they say, well, I'm, you know, I'm not Muslim and I'm not Buddhist and, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not an atheist. I'm not, no, I'm not that. And so, yeah, I'm a Christian. They check the box because they think, well, that's just my default, right? I grew up in a, uh, a Christian area or have a Christian background or Christian heritage. And so I must be, a, I know about Jesus. I'm, I'm a Christian. That's not saving faith. That's not what this word means. Faith is, listen, more than intellectual assent that the information about Jesus is true. Saving faith is more than just saying, well, I, I know about Jesus and, and yeah, that's true. I'll go with that. I hear you, preacher. I'm, 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 I'm on board. I agree. These kind of folks come and they, they hear the sermon and they think, well, okay, yeah, good stuff. I'm a fan. I'll be back next week, I guess. Yeah, it's good. Not life-changing. Not, uh, you know, not, it won't change the trajectory of my life, but that's good. That's, that's good. I agree. Why are you getting so worked up, Pastor Wade? I'm with you. And yet, there are many like that who would give intellectual assent to the story of Jesus, but they're not born again. So what is saving faith? Faith, listen to me, is personal. That means your grandma can't save you. Your mom and dad can't save you. It's personal trust and reliance. That's what saving faith, this word pistis, that's what that word is. It's, it's, it's personal trust and reliance. I want to show you this from the Bible. Look what it says back in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus. Now that preposition translated in Christ Jesus is the, the Greek preposition ice, which means we have believed literally into Christ Jesus. 
We've believed into Christ Jesus. We've, we've stepped into Christ by our faith. We've taken hold of him and his finished work. We're united with Christ by faith. And we'll talk a lot about union with Christ in the coming days. But this faith is not standing at a distance and saying, Hey, I know about Jesus. Jesus, yeah, I agree. I want to take hold of him. I want to trust him and his finished work because I believe that what he did for me is my only hope. I believe I can't save myself, but I know Jesus died for my sins. He loves me and took my sin and my punishment for me. And then after he died, he was buried, but he he rose from the grave. He's alive today. And if I place my faith in him, I will be justified. That's the kind of faith we're talking about here. It's a personal trust and reliance. Theologians call this aspect of faith fiducia. There's notitia type of faith and a census type of faith, which are the first two I talked about. But, but fiducia faith is, 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 is saving faith. It's, it's knowing about and assenting to the claims of Jesus. One, personally trusting him alone for salvation. You remember, don't you, that the demons, James chapter 2 believe that that God was God, the one God, and they shuddered, but they didn't, they, they believed, they assented to the truth about God, but they did not embrace the Lord as their Savior. It was a different type of faith, right? Different type of belief. So we're talking about fiducia here, saving faith, knowing about and assenting to the claims of Jesus and, and trusting him alone for salvation. I like what John Stott writes. He writes, Faith in Jesus Christ then is not intellectual conviction only, but personal commitment. It is an act of committal, not just ascending to the fact that Jesus lived and died, but, listen, running to him for refuge and calling on him for mercy. That's why the Bible says if we, if we believe in our heart, we confess our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God is raising from the dead, we will be saved. It's a faith that causes you to call on him and say, I need you. That's saving faith. Just this week, my wife got into a conversation with a young lady about the good news and and, and this young lady said these words. She said these words. And it was shocking to me because I've been studying this all week and it's just such a clear illustration of what we're talking about. She said to my wife, she said, after she shared Christ with her, uh, she said to my wife, I trust my Mary and my God. I trust my Mary and my God. In other words, her trust was, yeah. I believe in God, but I, I really, if you really want to know what I'm trusting in to save me, I trust in Mary praying for me. You know what Mary called God in Luke chapter 2? Her Savior. Only a sinner needs a Savior, right? Mary was a special lady. God gave her great favor to be the mother of Jesus, the God-man. But Mary can't save. You can't save yourself. Religious ritual won't save you. Intellectual assent won't save you. Listen, only Jesus saves. Because he's done everything necessary to save you. And so, let me give you very quickly just 
three implications of this. I may have to have a part two in this sermon, all right? What is the outcome of faith in Christ? What happens when you place your faith in Jesus? What does justification mean? What shape does justification take in your life? Well, justification, being made right with God, being declared not guilty, justification entails two things. Number one, forgiveness. When God justifies a person, he declares them not guilty. Isn't that glorious? Listen, the only reason I'm saved today is not because I'm good. Not because I figured it out. It's surely not because I'm a Baptist. I'm saved because Jesus took the punishment for my sins. And I placed my faith in him. And God, on the basis of the finished work of Christ, on the merits of his son, declared me not guilty. That's my only hope. That's your only hope. And when you place your faith in Christ, you're justified, which means you are completely forgiven of every wrong thing you've ever done or will do. Isn't that good news? Forgiveness. But it gets even better. Not only forgiveness, but imputed righteousness. Theologians call this alien or foreign righteousness. It means that righteousness that is not ours is given to us as a gift. When God justifies a person, he declares them perfectly righteous because he gives to them the righteousness of his son. See, not only did Jesus come and die for your sins, folks call that the the passive obedience of Christ. He obeyed the Father and took our sin on himself and died in our place. But Jesus also came to fulfill what is called the active obedience of Christ. In other words, he lived a perfect life. He never sinned. Listen to me. He perfectly fulfilled God's law. Perfect record. 100. Never fell short. Never said a wrong thing. Never thought a wrong thought. Never performed a wrong action. Perfect. He did everything required by his father. And here's what happens when you are born again. Your sins are applied to the cross where Jesus paid for them and you're forgiven. But then his righteousness is given to you as a gift. So now, listen to me, when the holy God looks at you, he doesn't see you. He sees the righteousness of his son. Perfect standing with God. What a great gift. So folks call this the great exchange. When you place your faith in Christ, he gets your sin, you get his righteousness. It's imputed, it's not yours, you didn't earn it, you didn't deserve it. It's his. He lived it out, but he gives it to you as a gift and you put it on like a robe. And that's what God sees. That's what justification means. So implications very quickly, I'll, I'll do this real quick and then we'll be through. Number one, hope for every sinner. Hope for every sinner. John Stott says, It is the good news that sinful men and women may be brought into acceptance with God, not because of their works, but through a simple act of trust in Jesus Christ. Now listen to me. If you're here this morning and you're lost, you're not born again, and the Holy Spirit's showing you that right now, He's convicting you of your sin, the message is not, Do better! Try harder. Clean 
giving up your life, that wouldn't be good news. That would be terrible news. Because your salvation would be up to you. And you and I know how weak you are because I know how weak I am. So a morality gospel is terrible news. Isn't it? That's not what I'm saying to you. Not do better. Here's what I'm saying to you. No matter where you are in your life, family background, socioeconomic standing, ethnicity, sins you've committed, no matter where you are in your life, Jesus is just one step away. And that step is faith in what he's done for you. Trusting him instead of trusting yourself. Running to him as the savior because you believe he's the only one who saves. So if the message was work harder, I would say, hey, get back to me in a few weeks and we'll see how you're doing. But if the message is you're saved by faith alone, the message is you can be saved today. Right? That's the message. It's good news. It's it's a gift of grace that you receive by faith. So there's hope for every sinner. That's why they call it good news. Number two, there's security for every believer. If you're born again, listen to me. When God renders the verdict not guilty, when God calls you justified, it is final. It's final. Nothing will change that standing because, listen, all your sins have been forgiven by the blood of Christ and you now have as a gift, as a robe, you have the righteousness of God's Son. How can you lose, right? You have a perfect standing with God. It will never change because the righteousness of Christ will never change and your sins being buried in the sea of forgetfulness will never change. You're His. You've been forgiven. You have imputed righteousness. There's security in that. I don't hope I'm saved or hope I'm going to heaven. I know I am because I've placed my faith in Christ. And the Bible says when I do that, I am declared not guilty, justified by God himself. Which leads to number three, gratitude for Jesus. Jesus took our sin. He earned righteousness by perfectly fulfilling the law of God and then gave it to us as a gift. If this sermon does anything for you, Christian, it ought to cause your heart to well up with a new and fresh gratitude for the finished work of Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad He left the splendor and glory of heaven? Aren't you glad He took on human flesh in the womb of the Virgin Mary? Aren't you glad that as as the the God-man... Fully God, fully man. He lived a perfect, matchless life. Aren't you glad that driven by his love for you and obedience to the Father, he went to the cross and took your sin on himself? Aren't you glad that he didn't stay dead? He was who he said he was. He could do what he said he could do, which is give eternal life. How can a dead man give eternal life? He rose from the grave and he's alive today. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he who knew no sin... Jesus became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Wow. Gratitude for Jesus. Here's the point. Here's what I want you to walk away with, and we're going to wind down the service. We cannot, and I hope I got this point across by God's grace, we cannot earn a right standing with God. Not going to happen. 
our flesh is weak. But we can receive, that's grace. We can receive a right standing with God by faith in Jesus Christ. And that's good news.